Let's pray. Lord, I'm, that last song reminded me of um, what John Calvin said, that there's not a man who knows the hundredth part of his sin. Lord, that uh, we understand that we are sinners, Lord, and the sins that we are aware of is a heavy burden that we know that we could never uh, afford to pay off the debt with which we are indebted to you, and yet we know from your word that our sin is far worse than what we even realize, Lord, that we deserve hell far more than we, we think, and we deserve it because you are far more holy than we even realize, Lord, and so uh, we just remind ourselves of our sinfulness, of our great need for a Savior, and that reminds us of the gloriousness of our Savior, that what he did was enough to make us white as snow, to wash all of that deep, dark stain away, to cancel out every one of our um, uncountable transgressions, Lord, every evil thought, every evil attitude, every evil word and deed. We know that um, if we are trusting in Christ, he has paid it all for us and that we are declared righteous by the holy God because we are hidden in his holy and righteous son, our Lord Jesus Christ. Um, Lord, forgive us for not loving you the way we ought to. We thank you that we do love you at all. It's a work of your spirit in our hearts, and yet we see how far we fall short. And Lord, we want to love you with the love that you are worthy of. And so we pray that through your word this morning, as we look at it together, that our hearts would be enlarged for our Savior, and that we would be transformed, and that we would not stay the same as we were when we came in this building, but that we would love Christ more and follow him more closely. Um, after today, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If you'd turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 4, we're looking at verses 8 through 13 this morning. First Corinthians 4, 8 through 13. Paul goes on speaking to the Corinthians. He says, You are already filled. You have already become rich. You have become kings without us. And indeed, I wish that you had become kings, so that we also might reign with you. For I think God has exhibited us apostles last of all, as men condemned to death, because we have become a spectacle to the world, both to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are prudent in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are distinguished, but we are without honor. To this present hour, we are both hungry and thirsty, and are poorly clothed, and are roughly treated, and are homeless, and we toil working with our own hands, when we are reviled, we bless. When we are persecuted, we endure. When we are slandered, we try to conciliate. We have become as the scum of the world, the dregs of all things, even until now. Um, there's a show I have often watched called Forged in Fire, and it's a competition show where blacksmiths compete to see who can craft the best knife or sword or whatever there's always a point in the episode as they go along building these blades 
They always come to the point where they need to heat treat the blade that they've forged. And they get that blade red hot, and then they quickly dip it in oil to cool it down rapidly in order to harden it. And if they do not harden their blade, when you hit it against something, the edge will roll or the the whole blade will bend. And if you harden it incorrectly, the blade will be brittle and it will snap and chip when you use it. And the blacksmiths, they always appear the most nervous when they get to this step of hardening their blade because it's so crucial to the formation of that weapon that they're making. Our lives in this world as Christians is much like being forged by a blacksmith. God is the blacksmith and he puts us in the fires of affliction in this life to remove impurities from us and to strengthen us and to make us what he wants us to be and to shape us to be more like his son. Suffering, affliction is part and parcel of being a Christ follower. Because none of us become just like Jesus the moment we're saved. There's still a lot of changing that needs to happen. There's no getting around the suffering. We need to willingly subject ourselves to that painful process. James, in his letter, chapter 1, verses 2 through 4, he said, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. Why should we do that? Because, he says, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect result, so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. He exhorts us to let endurance have its perfect result, to bear up under suffering. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 11 says, All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful but sorrowful. Yet to those who have been trained by it, afterwards it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. We all need to go through that discipline, that suffering, to become more and more like Christ. But in our pride, we tend to think that we are further along in our sanctification than we actually are. So, I don't know about you, but when suffering comes, I can... Instead of gratefully accepting it from God, I think I don't need this. In fact, (laughs) we end up saying, I don't need this. You know, this bad thing happens in our day and we say, that's the last thing I needed today. God says, no, it's the first thing you needed today because you're not what I want you to be yet. We tend to run from our trials because we don't think we need it. We think we're fine just the way we are. And God says, no, you're not fine. I still need to work on you. And the Corinthians were in this same spot of pride. They thought their sanctification process was all through. They had already arrived, and they were just waiting for everybody else to catch up and get to their level. They were not subjecting themselves to the humbling process of sanctification through suffering. And we're going to see that in this passage. So Paul, he's going to hold himself up and the other apostles up as examples to the Corinthians, as object lessons for the Corinthians to imitate, not to avoid. He's going to show us in these verses a couple of things. In verses 8 through 10, he's going to show us that we must suffer before 
we can rule. We must suffer before we can rule. And then in verses 11 through 13, he's going to show us that we must bear the cross before we wear the crown. We must bear the cross before we wear the crown. So first, you must suffer before you rule. We see this in verses 8 through 10. In these three verses of chapter 4, we see Paul's assault on the Corinthians' pride reaching a climax. Paul uses yet another tactic, a tool from his toolbox, in order to expose their pride. He speaks here with a great deal of irony and sarcasm. He praises them while making it crystal clear that he doesn't believe a word he is saying about who he's saying they are. Look at um, verse 8. He says, You are already filled. You have already become rich. You have become kings. Paul there is mirroring back to them their own estimation of themselves. It's like he's playing a tape recorder back to them saying, Can you hear yourselves? Can you hear how you're talking? He wants them to become embarrassed about their own behavior. He wants them to be shocked by their own arrogance. They think that they have arrived spiritually. They consider themselves filled, rich, and ruling, superior to others. And look at how that verse 8 says at the end there, you have become kings without us. You have become kings without us. What need do they have for Paul and others? They have reached the finish line even ahead of the apostles. Clearly, Paul does not mean what he's saying because he says, Indeed, I wish that you had become kings. I wish that you had become kings so that we also might reign with you. Paul wishes his words were true, but they're not. If the Corinthians had been made full, if they had become rich, if they were indeed ruling, sharing in the messianic rule of Christ, it would mean that Christ had returned, that he had set up his kingdom, and that Paul and the rest of the the teachers of the Corinthians would be enjoying that, that ruling, that reigning, that being filled right alongside the rest of the Corinthians. But Christ has not returned. Yet the Corinthians are acting like that kingdom has already come. How are they acting like that? They're acting like that because the way they're living, they're assuming that there's no cross for them to carry. No painful sanctification left to undergo. No suffering left to face. They think the process for them is over. They've arrived. Have you ever boasted about something only to be rudely awakened to the fact that you are not as great as you made yourself out to be. How did you respond? Did you get mad and try to make excuses for yourself? Did your face get beat red as you were humiliated in front of everybody who was looking at you? Did you humbly acknowledge that you were wrong when that happened? Job was a man who had one of those rude awakenings. Turn back to Job 38, the book right before the Psalms. Job 38. 
In the book of Job, we find in the early chapters that the Lord planned for Job to endure incredible suffering. Incredible suffering. And at first, Job handles it very well. He's trusting the Lord, and he's giving God glory. He's not ascribing evil to the Lord. He's submitting to what is happening to him. But as time went on, he began to demand an audience with God. He wanted to talk with God about all the suffering that he was having to endure. And slowly he begins to suggest that there is some kind of fault in God for bringing all of this suffering upon him. Job presumed to know more about the situation than he actually knew. Well, God answered his request. God gave him an audience. But he showed up in a storm, in a whirlwind. Look at chapter 38, verse 2. The Lord asked Job, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Now gird up your loins like a man, and I will ask you, and you instruct me. Can you imagine God showing up in a whirlwind and say, okay, let me sit at your feet, O Job, and you instruct me. Already your face is turning red because you realize, "Uh uh-oh, I went too far in my words. And God continues on like that for, for chapter after chapter until you get to chapter 41. But looking at chapter 40, verses 1 through 2, there's a little pause there. God takes a break from rehearsing to Job his greatness. Chapter 40, verse 1, Then the Lord said to Job, Will the fault finder contend with the Almighty? Let him who reproves God answer it. And then what does Job do? How does he respond? Verse 3, Then Job answered the Lord and said, Behold, I am insignificant. What can I reply to you? I lay my hand on my mouth. Once I have spoken and I will not answer, even twice and I will add nothing more. You could say that Job had been put in his place by God. And when we come back to 1 Corinthians chapter 4, we're going to see the Corinthians being put in their place. Their their pride is going to be exposed As God compared himself to Job in order to expose Job's pride, Paul is going to compare himself and the apostles to the Corinthians in order to expose the Corinthians' pride. And if they have an ounce of humility left, they will be ashamed and they will lay their hands over their mouths. Paul goes on in chapter 4, verse 9. He says, For I think God has exhibited us apostles last of all, as men condemned to death, because we have become a spectacle to the world, both to angels and to men. Paul says, you guys have scrambled your way to the top of the social ladder, but we apostles are still down here on the bottom rung. Remember verse 7, the Corinthians had proclaimed themselves among the elites. They said, or Paul says to them, for who regards you as superior? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? They thought they had pulled pulled themselves up by their own bootstraps. They thought they were at the tippy top. 
But Paul says, in contrast to them, God has determined that we apostles should be put on display, not as the cream of the crop, which is how you guys view yourselves, but instead as dead last in society. Dead last. That's what he says. God has exhibited us apostles last of all. Men, he says, condemned to death. Men fit only to provide entertainment in the Colosseum by dying as the world, both earthly and heavenly, looks on. Paul says that's who we are, us apostles, your teachers. That's quite a contrast between the Corinthians and the apostles. Paul is making it very clear that something has gone drastically wrong in the Corinthians' spiritual lives if they think that they have become perfected and have begun to reign already, while the apostles, their teachers, are still finding it necessary to continue down the path of suffering. Somebody's got it really wrong, and it's not the apostles. Paul continues to compare the Corinthians to the apostles. He compares their lofty view of themselves with the apostles' painful and humble daily experiences of life in Christ. He goes on in verse 10. He says, We are fools for Christ's sake, but you, you are prudent in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are distinguished, but we are without honor. It's interesting, the Corinthians and the apostles are leading two totally different lives. The Corinthians' worldview, their understanding of what their life in Christ is supposed to be like, has been completely warped and twisted and turned upside down because of their adulterous flirting with the wisdom of the world. They don't even realize how much their thinking has been poisoned by the way the world thinks. They've swallowed it completely. Their goal as Christians is the same as their goal when they were unbelievers, self-advancement. Nothing has changed. They've completely carried over the same attitudes and worldviews from their life as unbelievers into their life as Christians. Rather than seeking the glory of Christ, rather than seeking to help one another be built up, they are only seeking to build themselves up. They were believing in the prosperity gospel of their day, a false gospel. It's a type of gospel that the world is A-OK with because it's a type of gospel uh, whose values align perfectly with the values of the world. It's all about me and how I can get ahead. That was the Corinthians' view. I want you to turn to Matthew chapter 20, because I want you to compare the Corinthians' view of the kingdom as they are pushing each other down and trying to get to the top. I want you to view, compare that view with that of Jesus in Matthew 20. Matthew 20, verses 20 to 28. Here we start out seeing the disciples acting just like the Corinthians, and Jesus is having to correct their understanding of the kingdom. Matthew 20, verse 20. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came to Jesus with her sons. 
bowing down and making a request of him. And he said to her, What do you wish? She said to him, Command that in your kingdom these two sons of mine may sit, one on your right and one on your left. Now give my sons the best seats in the kingdom, in other words. But Jesus answered, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am about to drink? Jesus is saying, Do you understand that before you can assume those positions, that there is an unbelievable amount of suffering that you are going to have to go to, go through before you can sit in those spots. He says, are you able to drink the cup that I'm about to drink? What cup was that? Cup of suffering. He suffered before he ascended to the right hand of the Father, and these disciples have no conception of of the fact that that is how things work. They think, boom, Christ's going to take over, no problem, and then we can sit on his right and on his left. Jesus is letting them know, you don't know what you're asking. And clearly they don't know what they're asking because in answer to Jesus' question, they said, oh yeah, we are able. We are able. Verse 23, Jesus said to them, my cup you shall drink, but to sit on my right and on my left, this is not mine to give but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my Father. And hearing this, the ten became indignant with the two brothers. But Jesus called them to himself and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great men exercise authority over them. It is not this way among you, but whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant. And whoever wishes to be first among you shall be your slave, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. That is the view of the kingdom that Paul is seeking to realign the Corinthians to. And we also need that kind of realignment in our thinking quite often. Do we think we are great in the kingdom? Our greatness in the kingdom is not determined by how many servants we have, but by how many people we serve. Where are the scars on our bodies and on our souls that we have received because of our stand for Christ? Where are the laugh lines on our faces and the tear stains on our cheeks as we we have sought to rejoice with those who rejoice and mourn with those who mourn? Where are the calluses on our knees from the hours spent praying for one another? Those are the marks of where you're at in terms of what reward you will receive in the kingdom. Are we pampering ourselves, looking to avoid pain and discomfort and inconvenience at all costs because we are the center of our own universe? Or are we spending our lives and being spent for the glory of Christ and the good of one another? That is the path to greatness in the kingdom, the path of suffering and serving one another. You must suffer before you can rule. The Corinthians thought they were already ruling, but Paul's saying, well, where's your suffering? That brings us to our second point. You must bear the cross before you may wear the crown. 
verses 11 through 13. The Corinthians, they're scrambling around looking for a tape measure to measure their heads to make sure their crowns will fit snugly on their new, newly puffed up heads. And while they're doing that, what are Paul and the other apostles doing? What does Paul say in verse 11? He says, to this present hour, we are both hungry and thirst. You remember what the Corinthians said about themselves. They said, we are filled. The apostles say, well, we're still hungry. We thirst. Paul says, to this present hour, we are poorly clothed. How did the Corinthians view themselves? They, they said, we're rich. Paul says that he and the apostles are roughly treated and are homeless, and we toil working with our hands. But the Corinthians considered themselves as reigning, and they didn't even pause to wonder why the apostles had not joined them yet. Paul goes on in verse 12 to describe his life as an apostle. He says, when we are reviled, we bless. When we are persecuted, we endure. When we are slandered, we try to conciliate or plead. Who do their lives sound like? Christ. Their lives are being patterned after their master, the Lord Jesus Christ. When reviled, Christ blessed. When persecuted, he endured. When slandered, he didn't slander them back. Paul goes on in verse 12, or verse 13, the end of the verse, to say, We have become as the scum of the world, the dregs or the offscourings of all things, even until now. Paul says that he and the apostles are considered by the world as being no better than the grease that you try to wash off your pans. No better than the charred remains of your food that you try to scrap, scrape off your grill. They are just a disgusting annoyance to the world. Do you see the contrast between the apostles and the Corinthians? On the one hand, you've got Paul and the other apostles, and their backs are breaking, their knees are shaking, and their shoulders are chafing from the crosses that they are carrying as they follow the Lord Jesus. But on the other hand, there are the Corinthians who are pleased with themselves. They are lounging around, enjoying their creature comforts, congratulating themselves for how great they are. Which of these two are following Christ crucified? The apostles, not the Corinthians. The Corinthians have begun to deceive themselves into thinking that they could wear the crown without bearing the cross. They had fallen into thinking that they could live by the world's wisdom and follow Jesus at the same time. They had ditched their crosses off the side of the road. They had wandered off the straight and narrow path. And there is Paul, still on the straight and narrow path, bearing his cross, and he looks back, and he sees these Corinthians headed for a cliff. And he's saying to them, crying out to them, Hey guys, I'm over here. Stop rejoicing in your newfound feeling of lightness and strap your crosses back on and let's get back on the road following Christ together. The Corinthians had ditched their crosses. They forgot that the path to glory 
goes straight through the cross. And that's a question we need to consider about ourselves. Have we ditched our crosses? Do we think that we can circumnavigate bearing our own cross on our way to heaven? You cannot follow Jesus without carrying your cross, without denying yourself. Listen to what Jesus says in Luke chapter 9, verses 23 to 26. He was saying to them all, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake, he is the one who will save it. For what is a man profited if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. The straight and narrow road to the kingdom is marked with suffering. If you are on that road following after Christ, you will suffer. And it's not that you need to seek out that suffering. It's that the suffering will just happen in the course of following Jesus, whether it's persecution or sickness or heartache or any manner of painful trials. And we're not told to what degree each one of us will suffer. We're just told that we will suffer. And we will suffer not as though we need to earn something from the Lord through our suffering. We're not paying for our own sins. Jesus did that. No, we are suffering simply because we are following in the footsteps of our Savior who suffered. Uh, turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 2, because he talks about this. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 21. You often hear the phrase, in his steps. We're to walk in his steps. But do we, know, do we know the context in which that phrase is uttered by the Apostle Peter? What does that mean, to follow in his steps? 1 Peter 2, verse 21. Peter says, For you have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds you were healed. For you were continually straying like sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherd and guardian of your souls." Go over to chapter 4, where Peter continues to speak about what it looks like to follow in the steps of Christ. 1 Peter 4, verse 12. He's writing to believers who are either going through suffering or they're about to face suffering. And he's saying, don't be surprised. This is expected. 1 Peter 4, verse 12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you which comes upon you for your testing, as though some strange thing were happening to you. 
But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing, so that also at the revelation of his glory you may rejoice with exaltation. If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. Make sure that none of you suffers as a murderer. There's nothing meritorious or good about suffering in and of itself. The whole world suffers. What Peter's talking about is suffering as a Christian. He makes this clear here. Verse 15, make sure none of you suffers as a murderer or thief or evildoer or a troublesome meddler. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, he is not to be ashamed but is to glorify God in this name. For it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. He's talking about suffering there. If you're part of the household of God, that is going to come upon each one of you, upon me. And if it begins with us first, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if it is with difficulty that the righteous is saved, what will become of the godless man and the sinner? Therefore, those who suffer, excuse me, <laughs> therefore, those also who suffer according to the will of God shall entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. It is with difficulty that the righteous is saved. Doesn't mean we have to do a bunch of stuff to earn heaven. He's not saying that. He's saying that when God saves us, the path that he draws us down as he brings us to himself is a difficult path, that there is suffering along that path because it's the path that our suffering Savior has marked out for us, and he's going to purify us as he brings us down that path. So back to thinking about 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 8 through 13, if we were to boil down this passage, it might be something like this. You Corinthians say you have already arrived spiritually. You say that you've already been perfected, but where is the cross you carried that resulted in this perfection that you say you have? Where are the calluses on your shoulders that came from carrying that cross? Because that's the only way to arrive at the position that you are saying that you have arrived at. If you're a Christian, you're guaranteed to suffer. It comes with this great gift of salvation. Isn't that what Peter said, or excuse me, Paul, in the book of Philippians? Philippians chapter 1. It's dangerous when I think of a passage that I didn't think about beforehand. And I know the chapter, but I can't quite remember the verse. But do you remember where Paul say it has been granted to you not only to believe, but also to what? To suffer. That is part of the gift of salvation that comes to us. Suffering is baked in to that free gift of salvation. I can't find that verse, but maybe you can tell me later. Yeah? 129. Thank you, Sue, and somebody else who shouted it out. It says, For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake, experiencing the same conflict which you saw in me and now here to be in me. 
If we think we are someone special in the church, we need to ask ourselves this question. Are you truly following Jesus? If you are, you will be carrying a cross, meaning you will be denying yourself. You will be willingly letting go of what this world can give you because what you have found in Jesus is so much better. You will grow in your willingness to undergo whatever suffering the Lord brings your way because as you grow, you will come to understand more and more that your character still falls far short of that of your Savior. You will recognize, I still have a need to be purified, to be transformed in the crucible of suffering. And amazingly, you, as you grow, you will begin to find joy in the midst of the suffering, not because it feels good, but because you are fellowshipping with Jesus in his suffering. And you know what God is doing in your life through that suffering. And again, I want to be clear, the suffering is not you earning salvation. Christ earned it for you. But it is baked into that free gift that he's given you that once he saves you, he sets you on the path of suffering that leads to glory through the cross. If you have never picked up your cross to put one foot in front of the other in following Christ, but you are here this morning and you have come to realize that I am a sinner headed for hell because I'm still in love with this world. I don't want to part with this world. And that's not good. But the scriptures say to you, there is salvation for you in Jesus Christ. He carried his cross, and he was nailed to that cross, and he died on that cross in order to pay for the sins of his people, to rescue all who would turn from their sin to trust in him as their Lord and as their Savior. And Jesus did this to save his people from their sin and from the wrath of God. And then he rose from the dead. The tomb is empty. He did that so that all who would trust in him would be forgiven of every one of their sins, past, present, and future, and be declared righteous in the sight of God and be made citizens of his glorious kingdom. And if you surrender your life to Jesus, he will save you. He's promised to do that. You cannot do anything to save yourself. Christ did it all. But we are told to count the cost. You have to understand that when Jesus saves someone, he places that person on the same path that he walked, a path that leads to a cross and then to glory. It's a path that is marked by suffering. And so, if you are an unbeliever and you're considering following this Jesus, you have to ask yourself, how much is Jesus worth to you? Is he worth the suffering that will result from being one of his blood-bought people? If you believe he is worth that, then ask for him to have mercy on you, the sinner, and he will save you, and he will put his Holy Spirit inside of you, and he will put you on that path, and by the power of his Spirit, he will enable you to walk that path to the end and bring you to himself forever. But if you do not believe that Jesus is worth suffering for, 
then you do not yet know him savingly. You do not see him as he is. You do not yet see him as the treasure hidden in the field that a man found and sold everything he had in order to get. You don't yet see him as the pearl of great price worth giving up everything in order just to get that pearl. That is how we have to see Jesus, that he is worth far more than anything I could possibly ever get in this world. And so it doesn't matter if I lose the world. It doesn't matter if I lose my life in this world as long as I can get him. That's all that matters. And he is offering himself to each one of us freely. And he's done everything needed to forgive us and save us and reconcile us to God. But we won't turn to him until we see him as worth that. And so if you do not see him as worth that, you need to pray that God would give you new eyes to be able to see Jesus for who he really is so that you can count the cost And having counted it, you see that Jesus is definitely worth that. And you will still call on his name to save you. And he will save you by his merits, by his grace, through faith in him alone. Let's pray.